The following conversation with Dalton Miller-Jones about Paul Robeson and about Dalton's work as an activist and professor originally aired on February 26, 2021 on the Radical Songbook on KPOV 88.9 FM High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. The Radical Songbook is hosted by Michael Funky. It is a two-hour show highlighting the role that music plays in social justice and protest and that airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Dalton Miller-Jones is uh, uh, no stranger to regular Radical Songbook listeners. He's been a guest on the show uh, talking about his work on restorative justice and equity, and he's one of the organizers of the Let's Talk About about Race Town Halls for Central Oregon High School Students of Color. Some of you may remember that I had some students on from those town halls that Dalton and, and other organizers uh, uh, put together um, before the pandemic. Miller Jones is a retired from Portland State University, where he served as a vice provost for academic affairs and was a psychology professor focused on the impact of culture on the development and learning of African-American and indigenous children. Before PSU, Miller Jones taught at Cornell University, where he helped to establish the Africana Studies and Research Center. He also taught at Williams College and City University of New York. He was the director of the Northern Student Movement in Boston uh, and the surrounding New England communities in the 1960s. The, the, the Northern Student Movement was affiliated with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, as I understand it, known as SNCC, which was operating down in Mississippi, helping uh, register uh, black voters and, and uh, running freedom schools and, and just some, doing some great work down, down, in, um, down in Mississippi. And the Northern Student Movement that um, Dalton directed uh, was organizing the fight for freedom justice in the Boston area through freedom schools, as I understand it, um, the nation's first citywide boycott of public schools around race, race issues, rent strikes, and other neighborhood-based campaigns. You can read, uh, I, you can find a recent interview with Dalton Miller-Jones at the Oregon Community Foundation webpage. If you go to OregonCF.org and then go down to Community Impact and scroll down to Community Stories, I encourage you to read it. It's a uh, uh, particularly for for those of us who have known Dalton uh, here in Central Oregon, but don't really know a lot about all that Dalton has been doing uh, for for decades and decades. So over a year ago, um, before COVID nineteen, I shared a meal with Dalton and our friend Romir Chatterjee, uh, where we talked about our mutual love of fly fishing. And the conversation was pretty freewheeling as we shared dinner. We shared stories from our past, and at one point. Dalton mentioned that while he was a student at Rutgers University in New Jersey, he had been part of a student effort to resurrect the work and life of another Rutgers student from over 100 years ago, Paul Robeson. That conversation moved on to uh, plans for a fishing trip to the Oahe River on the Oregon-Idaho border. And as we planned that trip, I... uh, I envisioned several hours traveling with Dalton in the car, an opportunity to truly share, learn more about his activist past, and including uh, the Robeson story. Unfortunately, COVID-19 has, and I will just say this, has, has delayed a trip that will happen. Yes. <laughs> yes. So earlier this month, it struck me that the songs and words of Paul Robeson and Dalton's memories of his time at Rutgers would make for an enjoyable and educational radio show during Black History Month. So here we are today. Dalton, welcome to the Radical hey. Songbook. Well, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it, Michael. Yeah, I, I'm really great. That, uh, it's really great that you can join me. So... Um, 
I think before we get into your time at Rutgers, we should talk a little bit about um, who Paul Robeson was. So do you want to start that off? Well, I certainly, certainly, there's uh, quite a bit to say about who he was and yeah. who, he, who he is. Um, for those on the program who don't know, um, I would have to say Paul Robeson is probably the most accomplished African-American certainly of his time, uh, but perhaps of all time. Um, uh, I think it's important to know that he, uh, first and foremost, was an accomplished scholar, as well as an actor, singer, a- athlete, and uh, and I think the byline on the webpage at Rutgers now calls him a global activist. <laughs> uh, the reason I chuckle is that... Uh, Wilson was probably one of the very first and certainly the most articulate advocate for people of African descent here in America and as he as he grew uh, around the world but not, don't let me get too too far too far ahead of myself he he was born in Princeton New Jersey and he was the son of a uh, of, of his dad ran was a runaway slave um, uh, ran away at the age of 15. Uh, his dad, <laughs> again, another remarkable background, he uh, went, uh, got himself into a uh, university, Lincoln University, one of the first and, and, and perhaps the uh, most powerful of the black colleges at the time in Pennsylvania. Uh, he got his, his dad got a degree in theology there. Uh, his mom was also quite accomplished. Uh, but the, let me just go on with, with, with Paul. <laughs> he, um, he was, I think, Rutgers' third black student. And certainly he was the first black football player at Rutgers. Um, on the athletic field, he was extraordinary. He won 15 varsity letters in uh, football, basketball, baseball, and track uh, in uh, 1917 and 1918. He was named an All-American. Um, he uh, uh, goes on to become, uh, let me see if I can get the academic uh, accomplishment straight, uh, he spoke 20 languages fluently. Uh, and as an orator, he uh, was a member of the Intercollegiate Debating Association. He was the valedictorian of his graduating class in 1919. Um, I started to say his mother uh, was accomplished as well, Maria Luisa Bussell, uh, the teacher uh, from a distinguished family of abolitionists. Um, and I'm sure she was significant. He, she died of a, a tragic accident when he was five years old, when Robeson was five years old. Uh, I forgot to mention that he, in addition to just being an outstanding athlete, he was two-time All-American in football uh, and, is, and is in the College Football Hall of Fame. This is, of course, before any professional uh, football leagues uh, would, would accept any black players. Uh, uh, he was inducted into Phi Beta Kappa Society, 
uh, Rutgers Cap and Skull Society, Honor Society. Um, he he was just just an extraordinary person, and I have to back off a, a minute. Yeah, he, he got a, won a law degree from Columbia University, um, but gave up uh, any aspirations around being a professor uh, because he was in such demand around the world uh, to speak. He uh, was an advocate along with um, W. E. B. Du Bois to to surface our connection. Uh, our being African American community connection with Africa. Uh, I actually knew nothing about Paul Robeson when I applied to and uh, was going to Rutgers University. In my toward the end of my sophomore year, I was at a, a, a family gathering of my uh, fiance, whose uncle was James Jackson. Uh, for those people who are unaware of that era, James Jackson was the editor of the Daily Worker, a communist uh, socialist paper, newspaper, pro-labor, pro-union. Uh, and and at this function, he said, "So you're you're a student at Rutgers. So what do you think of your your most illustrious uh, graduate, Paul Robeson?" I said, "Paul, who? <laughs> I had no idea. So the most illustrious." graduate of Rutgers was Ozzie Nelson from the Ozzie and Harriet show, I think. Um, so we've got back to campus, and, and some of me have been working uh, as a collective self-interest, working, trying to get fair housing established at Rutgers after so many of us uh, as students of color were turned down for housing that was listed by our university housing department. Uh, and uh, at the time, uh, Michael, I'm, I'm sure you know, and maybe others in the audience know, that there was a big campaign around trying to break the redlining practices and, and getting uh, homes sold by owners to people of color. The Congress of Racial Equality Corps was working uh, in teams going in through neighborhoods, sending in black couples, uh, who were often told, uh, oh, gee, you know, I'm sorry, but we just rented this house and we just rented this room, or we just sold it. Uh, and then a few hours later, they would send a, a white couple by, only to find out, of course, that the uh, house was still for sale, that the room was still for rent, uh, and so on. So we would, we used that, that strategy to document for the university who said, we don't have any evidence that uh, we have unfair housing practices going on. And so uh, we got the university then to ensure that when people were placing their places up for students to, uh, to rent, uh, that, that they were going to be bound by and heavily fined if, if they did not permit black students and students of color to, to rent there. Uh, so we had been meeting around these kinds of issues, and I said, you know, we don't, there's not a sign, there's not any indication that Paul Robeson was ever here at Rutgers. Uh, for your audience also, you have to recall that this is the era of Joseph McCarthy and the House on American Activities Committee, uh, the witch hunt for people who might be uh, communist in this country. And so uh, 
there, there was a tendency for universities and other organizations to try to fly below the radar and not to promote uh, someone like a Paul Robeson, who had uh, spoken outright about how uh, people of color were treated much better in the Soviet Union than they were here in America. Um, that being beside the point, actually, uh, given his his accomplishments, if anybody goes online and just types in Paul Robeson, you can find out there's some interviews, uh, videos, and so forth that are available uh, for this just this remarkable person uh, who uh, we were unsuccessful in getting the university to begin to acknowledge that uh, that he was a graduate of Rutgers. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's and that's not a. I mean, the two things to me that are really of interest here is that I mean, I don't think it's any particular surprise during the Cold War and the McCarthy period that that you wouldn't wouldn't necessarily know anything about. Paul, because he had literally been uh, disappeared from history, and 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 certainly at Rutgers, there was. I, I was reading that in nineteen. He was, as you said, he was a he was an All American football player for two years, and uh, in nineteen fifty, they there was a book printed that uh, listed all of the All Americans and all the great football player collegiate football players in nineteen fifty, and Paul Robeson wasn't even in the book. Uh, I mean, he wasn't even mentioned, right? And and yeah, just to remind our listeners, uh, you know, Dalton, in my in my feeling, I mean, you said that you thought he was the, you know, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, the greatest African American. I mean, I, I would, I, I I'm hard pressed when I sit and I think about, okay, in the entire history of this country, you know, uh, anybody, regardless of race, anybody, who uh, who else compares in terms of the scope of, of their life for 40 years plus, you know, not only the, the accomplishments that you mentioned, um, his academic accomplishments and, and learning all the languages and, and be, going to law school. He, he was really world-renowned as a stage performer. I mean, countless, uh, mm. just tons of, of stage productions, uh, Othello among them. He, he, he recorded something like 200 and some 50 songs or something like that over the court. He, he was internationally known figure uh, on the stage in movies and in song and in live concert. And also, you know, he, he as I understand that he, his, the, his political awareness, his political, I, I mean, he was always there on, on terms of racism. I think his, his internationalism developed during the, Spanish Civil War in the late 30s, uh, mm. when and so he became a great anti-fascist fighter as well as an anti-racist. And I think from that period on, that was the hallmark of what he did. He was an anti-racist and he was an anti—he was a freedom fighter against yeah. fa- against fascism and against racism, and it, and it cost him his career. We, we should note that he they took his passport, so he couldn't yep. travel and couldn't perform. Uh, yep. they, you know, I mean, they basically hounded him— uh, his records were pulled. His book, his 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 movies were pulled. Nobody could go see a movie in the fifties, yep. et cetera, et cetera. Well, I just I mentioned that I didn't know about him. Yeah, he just got buried. Yeah, yeah. It's tragic. It's tragic. Yep. You know. And he was just physically an imposing figure. Yeah. This is a man who would look you dead in the eye. He had not a. Uh, he had not been 
socialized into submission uh, and deference to to Euro Americans. He he was prideful, and he would look you dead in the eye, and with that deep, resonant baritone voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was I a bass baritone. Was an intimidating guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Later on in the show, after we talk, I'll play. Uh, I'm pretty sure we'll have time. I'll play a, an 11 minute excerpt of him, his testimony before HUAC, which is which demonstrates uh, exactly yep. what you're talking about. He's up against these powerful people who have who have had the uh, who have broken and destroyed the careers of countless people. And yep. he's totally defiant. He's totally defiant. I, I've long argued that if where people stood up to HUAC, the House on American Activities Committee, like Robeson did and Coleman Young and Zero Mostel and Pete Seeger, uh, that whole thing might have ended up very differently if people had really, you know, challenged oh, it more. Um, it's not trivial. Very, very important people were uh, were ruined by him, by yeah. McCarthy. Yeah. So, so you entered Rutgers in what year? Did you uh, did you enroll in Rutgers? I, I got there as one of eleven African Americans in the class of fifteen hundred in 1958. 1958. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask. So you were one of eleven African Americans that were on campus. Well, no, we were a class of eleven. We were freshmen together. Oh, I see. Okay, and, 11 and we freshmen. still hang out together now. Yeah, uh, these days. But I think all told, there were probably about 30, 32 uh, African-Americans at Rutgers. And Douglas was the female uh, state university across town. Uh And there may have been an equal number of African-American women over there. So so I know you said that, that, you know, that you weren't successful at that time. Uh, But, uh, you know... It's real interesting. I mean, you know, I think I kind of feel like every, you know, it's all everything leads to something. Things lead, you know, you what you did then helped to pave the way for, you know, the ultimate resurrection of Robeson on campus. And now, you know, uh, I mean, now, you know, there's uh, I was just looking He's at all a, a over the place. Yeah, yeah. The main <laughs> campus library is named after him. Uh, there's a Robeson yeah. Center. There's a Robeson yep. Cultural Center. There's, uh, you know, yeah, they, uh, an open air plaza uh, is named. Uh, yeah, just all kinds of stuff. So thank, thank goodness. I, I told you I was in Belize visiting with my granddaughter. My son went down there and had a has a daughter uh, from Belize, and we were walking on the beach one morning in Placencia, and I uh, I have this terrible habit of having been a university person and being in predominantly white universe uh, environments and communities. Whenever I see a, a black person, I, I kind of frighten them by running up to them and saying, hey, bro, what's happening? Well, I, I kind of did that in Belize. Uh, the black guy with a couple of dogs and his his wife walking on the beach, and we struck up a conversation, and come to find out, uh, 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 Colvin, Colvin uh, Watson uh, was is from the Toronto, Canada, uh, a Jamaican immigrant. Uh, his family moved to Canada, and uh, he was very, very proud of of the fact that he had won a a scholarship to Rutgers University. I said, no, get out of here. I'm graduating from Rutgers. He says, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a Paul Robeson scholar from yeah. Rutgers. 
<laughs> I said, holy moly. Yeah, well, that's remarkable. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, you know, I mean, for me, it's just, uh, to me, it's just really important for everyone to realize that, you know, even, um, you know, that the beginnings of things can lead to greater things down the line as long as, you know, yes. it's, it's, it's part of developing the awareness that comes first and, and, and developing the, the movement that can grow out of, out of the awareness. Did you ever, um, did, did you ever get to hear Robeson perform? No, not live. Yeah. Yeah, he. I, I, it was. It was. Uh, by by the sixties, uh, the the mid sixties. He he was. He had a lot of health issues and stuff, and 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 it, it kind of compromised his ability to um, to perform on on a regular basis. At any rate, and 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 a lot of his health issues, I would say, uh, are directly related to the stress of his life, the stress yeah. that resulted from the harassment uh, that he was subjected to by. Uh, the white power structure in this country and, and the anti-communism and all, all of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, um, after you graduated from Rutgers, was that when you got involved in, um, well, what, yeah. What, so what happened after you graduated from Rutgers? Well, I, I got married and, uh, I was on my way to Tufts medical school in Boston and I, I switched programs to study neurophysiological psych. But I got after my master's there. I, I uh, my last year, uh, I was graduate uh, work. I became the director of the Northern Student Movement. We had six hundred and twenty or thirty uh, students at the high point coming into Roxbury and Dorchester, uh, into the Black and Puerto Rican uh, communities uh, to tutor kids. Uh, the schools were atrocious in Boston and. Clearly, uh, practicing a set of racist policies. Uh, it, it, it goes on. It, the Boston uh, busing uh, era was is very, very well documented, well known. But we we uh, decided as a collective, uh, the leaders of most of the churches, the uh, uh, community organizers, Noel. De- Noel Day and and myself and a few others uh, decided that we needed to. We were getting nowhere with Louise Day Hicks and the Boston School Committee to address uh, the inequalities that existed in the district. Um, so we decided that we needed to boycott the schools until we uh, got satisfaction in terms of a, a set of policies to equalize the the books that the students were getting, uh, white students were getting, uh, I should say, there was a class dimension as usual. Uh, the wealthier communities were getting the better brand new books and the, the, the older retired books were, were distributed into the black and poor white school. Yeah. Um, so we, we formed freedom schools to, uh, with our tutors, from the Northern Student Movement in various uh, community centers and churches. And uh, uh, we, we held forth uh, school for almost two weeks before they finally uh, caved to national pressure uh, and public attention uh, to uh, commit to a more open process for budgeting and spending. The qualifications of teachers would... Uh, 
uh, be examined, and eventually it led to a whole busing program in a few years down the road. But by that time, I had uh, uh, I had left uh, a position as the Northern Student Movement and had become a science curriculum development developer for a couple of years, and through that, uh, I was asked to come to Cornell to finish my doctorate. Uh, and lo and behold, after two years at Cornell, I, I feel a little bit Forrest Gumpy here. Um, the, the students organized and, uh, and took over the student union uh, because they were not getting any satisfaction from the president and provost and the deans toward uh, establishing courses setting were more inclusive of the history and uh, and the problems facing the African-American community. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, I was really pleased to be asked to uh, negotiate with the president and provost, and we were able to establish the Africana Studies and Research Center at Cornell, uh, who um, also the director, James Turner, invited me to uh, or asked if I would join the faculty uh, in, in teaching in that program. So uh, that's that's how my academic career <laughs> sort of got launched. Um, and what year was that? That would be uh, 1969 through yeah. 73, I taught. And we, we got the program started in 69. Right. Yeah, we're going to have to take a break in a minute. But I, I recall that I, when I was in college in in 67 and 68, it was in I was in the West Coast. And in 1968 uh, was when um, the Black Studies Movement was launched at San Francisco yep. State. I wasn't there. I was at Sonoma State. And uh, it was a remarkable uh, shift. Thanks to the Black Students Union, uh, I would say. At San Francisco State, they were. It was a remarkable group of uh, activists. Danny Glover was among those activists in 1968 at San yeah. Francisco State. Listeners, if you just turned tuned in, I'm talking with Dalton Miller Jones, who's a activist here. You've, you've lived in Central Oregon for about ten years now. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And so uh, I met Dalton uh, through the restorative justice and equity um, work that he was doing. Actually, Dalton, I remember meeting you at a, a teachers' union meeting, you and Beth uh, Hoover were both there, and I was talking right. about not in our town, and you were there to talk about restorative justice, the restorative justice and equity group. That was three or four years ago, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so I think a lot of people here in, in Central Oregon who are very familiar with you and your work here in Central Oregon don't really don't really know a lot of this history that you uh, participated in, and so. In the mid '60s, of course, the, there was a, a lot of the activists that were involved in the what was called the civil rights movement or the freedom struggle. Um, also, were involved in uh, the anti-war movement at that time. Did, did, were, was were you among those folks? We had some uh, collaborations between uh, Tom Hayden and the Students for a Democratic Society and the leadership of the Northern Student Movement. There was a huge difference between the black liberation struggle in this country and the the protest against the war. Now, I say that fully aware that Martin Luther King's work on around poverty and uh, and other issues expanded the civil rights set of concerns to include the uh, given the nonviolent uh, philosophy 
against the, the imperialist actions that were taking place in Southeast Asia. So uh, a lot of black, the leadership in the black community were not particularly impressed by the self-interest that underlied the uh, anti-war movement. As soon as their uh, draft status got shifted, uh, so did their commitment in too many cases uh, evaporate. That's not to say that that doesn't play out in the black struggle for liberation and for black identity, but uh, but to a much lesser degree, I think. So those two uh, those two agendas did not overlap uh, sufficiently, I think. What other activities were you involved in after Cornell and, to, and before, uh, you know, and, and then at Portland State? I don't seem to be able to avoid uh, getting, uh, getting involved. I was at the City University of New York Graduate Center. A colleague, uh, Anderson J. Franklin, A.J. Franklin, and I have been uh, co-conspirators and, and buddies since, about 1969, uh, 1970, when we were at a joint conference in uh, in, uh, in New York, uh, he had uh, joined the faculty at Medgar Evers College, which is part of the University of uh, the City University of New York system. And the reason I'm mentioning his name is that he he got his degree from Eugene. Uh, he came out to Eugene with um, uh, his his mentor, uh, Art Pearl, who, uh, uh, you know, Art Pearl was a union organizer out here. You may know him. Uh, I know the from name. your work. Uh, Art uh, brought to Eugene the, uh, <laughs> the Black Panther Party uh, to, to get his degree. Huey Newton was got his degree with Art Pearl. Uh, Art with, had been a longshoreman here in Long Beach, I think, California, and uh, Johnson brought him into the Johnson administration to do the Manpower Act and, and several other uh, initiatives. So these are some of the players that get Dalton from the New York City out to Portland, Oregon, is what, I, what I'm trying to tell you. Okay. Um, and and I, I think people brought me here to Portland State largely to be the diversity person, uh, but they didn't tell me that. Um, and so after I got here in the psychology department uh, at Portland State, the, the provost asked if I would uh, sort of be the point person for their diversity ec- efforts, and I said, mm, I don't really do diversity because that's uh, my philosophy, that's a whole domain that white people need to get organized around and uh, consult with me about. Um, but that's that was just my own personal uh, position. However, uh, both at the City University of New York, where I was the head of the developmental PhD, psychology PhD program, and the executive officer for the doctoral programs in psychology, um, the um, there were very very few PhD students of color at that place, and so we uh, we went up to Albany. I, I was part of a team that went up, and we argued that there needed to be a ninety million dollar a year budget commitment 
to uh, super fellowships for the doctoral students at the City University of New York to recruit the most talented students of color from around the around the country. Uh, and so they approved it. And uh, I think based partly on that fact that we were able to triple the number of black and uh, and Latin students uh, in the university system in New York. And, and my wife is from McMinnville, Oregon. She was raised on a turkey farm there. And we had a little pact that if I ever got a job offer in Oregon, that uh, I would take it. Um, the, comp- the reasons I agreed to such a deal are complicated and not probably of interest to this audience, but uh, I did get an offer from Frank Martino, who had been the dean of science at City College and was then the provost at Portland State. And um, that's how I got out here. And when I got here uh, as academic uh, vice president, Vice Provost for Academic Affairs, uh, we we began arguing for resources to the most diverse population in the state, which would be the Portland area. And uh, while I was there, we grew to be the largest university in the, in the state, uh, and we had the largest graduate programs in the state. Uh, we had the largest number of minority students uh, in the state. I was asked by the dean to uh, to if I would share this uh, black studies department um, as it made a transition, and I I agreed to do that, and I did it for about five years, uh, and then I turned over the reins. And uh, those are some of the things I did before I retired in 2010 and moved to Bend. And and what brought you over here? Uh, I really love to fly fish. <laughs> yeah, that's how I got. That's how we got here too. Just something that uh, grabbed hold of me, and uh, I, I like dry fly fishing. I like yeah. to watch and figure out what's going on in the water. It's almost a meditative experience for me. Yeah, and and it's it's. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm at the stage in my life, and I and Romero, who also fly fishes, we're at the stage of our life where. We need it to be a little bit warmer out there. I know that Jeff Perrin from the Fly Fisher's Place up in Sisters is talking about going over to the Metolius and fishing right now. And to me, I, I did that 15, 12, 15 <laughs> years ago. It was cold then. I can't imagine doing it. So once it warms up, Dalton, we will, we will hit the water. We'll hit it. We'll hit a river. You, you, right. and, you and me and Romir, we'll socially distance because that's what yep. you do when you fly fish. That's true. Yeah. So how did you? So you you moved over here and and uh, and I, I mean I did the same thing. I moved over, I moved here for the fishing. I had visited and vacationed here and then, but I also knew that I was trying to get active because I was still relatively young. And so how did you end up getting active over here in Central Oregon? Well, um, two ways. One is that we started in Portland. Um, you mentioned San Francisco State. Uh, uh, Dr. Joe, I'm blocking Joe, Joe's last name, I think it's Jones, uh, uh, wrote a book on uh, black psychology that I used when I was teaching at Cornell. And Joe was at San Francisco State when they uh, started the, the black studies program there and the students had taken over the university. Well, 
I, I mentioned A.J. Franklin. Uh, he uh, got Joe, uh, uh, Dr. Joe in touch with um, us in Portland to put together what we call the Portland African American Leadership Team. And then after a couple of years, it became the Portland African American Leadership Forum. Uh, in several cities, uh, funded by a grant out of uh, uh, Minneapolis, uh, Seattle, Portland, uh, Pittsburgh, there, there were three or four cities where the money came in to encourage the various African-American groups to get together and talk about a common agenda and a, and a common uh, way of supporting one another. Uh, so that's what we did in Portland, and, and we addressed issues around the education achievement gaps. We uh, dealt with, most famously, with the uh, gentrification dynamics where uh, housing, uh, black housing, was increasingly being lost. And so that, that kept me pretty busy uh, in between my uh, work with graduate students and teaching uh, in Portland. Uh, I got over here and read about the Deschutes County Library. Everybody reads, or, or uh, I've forgotten what it was called, the, sort of the book of the year. Yeah, the community read. Community, yeah, reads. And I, I attended uh, one around the book Whistling Vivaldi, mm -hmm. which uh, Claude Steele's research had uh, been very, very important. I, I brought Claude to Portland State on three separate occasions to address our faculty uh, around his work about, uh, that's another conversation. So it was at that meeting that I was introduced to the, the people who were doing restorative justice here in town and uh, began attending meetings with them, and pretty soon uh, we were doing the town halls. Yeah, the town halls were remarkable. I, I think, and I, I'm. I look forward to you being able to, after this pandemic eases, being able to um, to do those town halls again. I really enjoyed uh, you. You and uh, other folks with restorative justice and equity did a great job of putting me in contact with a lot of these great students. Just uh, they, they just that my yep. conversations with them literally blew my mind. You know, they were just so. You know, they were just so sharp, you know, and, and many of them I have, that I spoke with, I'm sure, have, have graduated and are, are going to college somewhere. Uh, yeah, or, or, all of them. Yeah, yeah. So, but restorative justice, even though the town halls have um, not, you haven't been able to do that, give us an update. Restorative justice and equity did not go away at all just with the town halls. You are still organizationally very active, and, and what... Uh, what are what are folks doing right now? So we had to uh, quickly punt, yeah. <laughs> and uh, in addition to the students being very impressive, Michael, I think we discovered there's a there's a reservoir of talent here in Central Oregon that is really just remarkable. When we reached out to the community to find folks to help facilitate the table discussions and the breakout sessions at the town hall. We've had a preference for people of color to, to be in that leadership role. So at least 80% of the folks who did that uh, were, were 
people of color, Billapak people. I, I prefer Billapak to BIPOC uh, because it tends to be more inclusive. Uh, Billapak, D for black, I for indigenous, L for Latinx, A for Asian, uh, people of color. So we have this pool of people who have gone through some some of the preparation to do the town halls. We got a grant from the Oregon Community Foundation, which allows us to provide training and restorative practices. We've done this now uh, for about 40 of our volunteers, who we are calling our community cadre, along with Better Together, an organization that works out of the High Desert Education Service District in Redmond. Uh, who have also been using the same folks to give training to teachers and community members. Just remarkable movement taking place toward uh, an understanding of restorative practices, and I should probably say more about what that is. But the community cadres who we're working with now in collaboration with the leadership of the Portland Public Schools, Portland, uh, the Ben Lapine Public Schools, and... We were hoping that the, the, our community cadre will team up with the equity team leadership in the schools and uh, identify areas that we can address in a collaborative and collective way. This would include, for example, uh, with the COVID, we've gone to virtual uh, remote or distance learning. And uh, if if you are not if you have not gone through the educational process, this may give you um, some pause because you don't know quite how to be a support to your student learning. And so we are anticipating, as around the country people are anticipating, that there are going to be large achievement differences, academic differences in learning uh, over the last year. Many people who are educated and uh can afford it, have hired uh, teachers to work with uh, pods of students on uh, mathematics and on literature and, and other uh, disciplines uh, so that their educational uh, experiences haven't been as dramatically impacted as is, as have students who uh, don't have access to the Internet in a reliable uh ways with requires scheduling and parents are having to work and even under the threat of, of uh, and hazard of catching uh, COVID, the coronavirus, these folks are, are hard-pressed to they need to keep working. Uh, the students are pretty much uh, then left on their own. So we see the community cadre as a potential stepping into in that, that void, into that gap and trying to provide support for student learning. Now, of course, Ben Lapine is trying to get back to uh, at least partial face-to-face instruction. The need still exists, and so that's what we're putting our effort into is to, tell, to try to organize our community cadre to be working with schools, and we've expanded from high school to include uh, those middle schools who would like uh, us to be working with their students. Yeah, it's 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 a really important work. I mean, as we know, I mean, there's all kinds of uh, data and information out there that shows um, how um, the COVID nineteen the, the the pandemic has has uh, 
profoundly impacted people of color on all levels. Uh, and to be, you yep. know, Matt, mo- they're the they're they are by and large the the highest percentage of essential workers who are who are vulnerable uh, at at their workplaces and the 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 uh, the health health issues and educational issues. So it's great work that that restorative justice and equity continues to do. Can people get involved if they're interested? Uh, yes, we do want uh, people to get involved. They, we're part of a, a kind of a coalition of groups. Uh, there's a great deal of overlap in our interest in doing things. Uh, the Fathers Group, some of your audience may have heard of that group as well as the Restorative Justice. We both have websites that, that people can go to, and there they can find uh, ways to to stay in touch or get in touch with us and you know, find out about various programs that we're trying to, uh, that we have running and, and we hope to initiate. There's always room for people to participate. Embrace Bend is another organization we work very, very closely with. Um, in addition to that, there's the Central Oregon Diversity Project and uh, the uh, Peacekeepers and COBLA, Central Oregon uh, Black Leadership Assembly. All, all of the, all of these groups have projects that people can participate in and support. If you're not a teacher and you, you don't feel like you can really do that level of interaction, there's a lot of background work, collecting uh, resources, reviewing books that uh, potentially would be adopted to, to be used in, in the schools. There's room for people to participate, so do uh, look up the uh, Restorative Justice and Equity uh, website for Bend, uh, the Fathers Group website, Embrace Bend website, uh, are all places that uh, you can find out ways to get involved. I want to really thank you, Dalton, for the time that we've we, you took here with me. I really deeply appreciate it. Um, well, I appreciate being asked. It's an honor. Thank you. It's uh, it doesn't totally substitute for a six-hour drive out to the Oahu, but uh, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. that'll that'll be in our future here. Any any parting words that you have for for well, the community? I, I have a parting word, Michael, yeah. which is to thank you on behalf of the entire Central Oregon community. This program and and KPOV are just uh, a blessing and a gift, and we do appreciate you in this work to keep us informed and to give us opportunities to share thank you it's our job <laughs> you know uh, okay <laughs> no, no, i mean you know it's it's our responsibility i guess i would say uh you know so but i, I really appreciate it very i appreciate your words very very much okay and, you, and uh harambe right on okay take care okay bye-bye everybody bye-bye. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and a program schedule, go to kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.